a reading from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Therefore, encourage one another and build up each other, as indeed you are doing. But we appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace amongst yourselves because, uh, and we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them, see that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise the words of the prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. May the God of peace sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do this. Beloved, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I solemnly command you by the Lord that this letter be read to all of them. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. The Gospel reading is from the book of Matthew. Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, as we uh, conclude our study of, of this really wonderful letter in the New Testament, would you give us understanding as to how we might be a community that inhabits these words, that they would shape the way we live life in our week, they would shape the way we live with one another, and particularly that they might shape the way we live with you. So meet us, we ask, Father, Son, and Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are, we're finishing up our study of 1 Thessalonians, which if you've been tracking with us or listening to them or following them all along, you see and remember that really Paul is very concerned uh, at this early stage of the church's life that they just keep taking next steps with Jesus. I mean, that's really what he wants them to do. What does it mean for them in that early, early space of life following Jesus? What does it mean for them to, to keep believing? 
to keep holding on and to do that in a community that was beginning to experience turmoil, right? As suffering was emerging and it was happening sort of naturally as Christianity begins to differentiate itself or, uh, from, from, from Judaism. In other words, the, the Jewish community was beginning to say, yeah, you know, you've, you've, you've moved to, from a distance from us and you're not of us. And one of the very practical consequences that we've said over long is that when that happened, inside of the Roman culture, that meant that the special provisions that were given to the protected status of, of the Jewish community were withdrawn from the Christian community. And so suffering begins to emerge differently. And you can imagine if you're a follower of Jesus in the first century that, you know, you're thinking, wait, I thought the kingdom was coming. And I thought, you know, this was going to be different. And all of a sudden you're caught in this space of conflict of, of, of do I want to keep going with Jesus? <laughs> you know, do I want this life of faith? And is it panning out? It's certainly not panning out the way I thought it would. So one of the things Paul does in this particular letter is he continually reframes their experience in light of the reality that Jesus has accomplished. He just keeps coming back to the story of Christ, and then he casts vision for the future of what they actually belong to. You belong to the kingdom that is established simply because of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, the gift of the Spirit. Hold on, keep taking those next steps. And these are the same kinds of words, even though we live long after this first, this early, early moment of the church, right? These are the same kinds of words that we need because we continue to inhabit a world in which the kingdom is present, but not fully. It's not visible in all dimensions and all aspects. We experience our own conflicts and we still live in a world that's broken. Our bodies experience it. This day is Father's Day. And for some people that begin to think about a day like this day, it's hard because you have not the most fantastic memories of growing up in your own families. Or it may be hard because you long to be a father, but you haven't been yet been in a place where you can be a father. And it's not going to happen in your life, right? We, we live in a very conflictual way with some of the best moments and things that are so worthy of celebration because our world is broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. So what does it mean for you and for me and for all of us together to keep taking next steps with Jesus, to stick with the faith rather than give up on the faith. Uh, so we're doing this today, as we've mentioned before already, that this is Trinity Sunday, which basically is a feast day in the life of the church. And it sort of happens as we kick off into ordinary time in the church calendar, which is a time when you're very specifically and intentionally thinking about, what does it mean for me to grow up? as a Christian? What does it mean for me to sort of begin to mature and to begin to put on those kinds of themes of discipleship and formation into my life? And we have right here at the outset of Ordinary Time, Trinity Sunday, when we just remember the fruition of everything that Jesus has done. He invites us into fellowship with himself, with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God. And if you just stop and you think about that, God is not out there holding his hand out against you. He's not out there in some oppositional way to you. But he is a God who has willingly chosen to posture himself toward you, for you. I love Andre Rublev's icon of the Trinity. If you've never seen it, Google it because it's just fantastic because he beautifully depicts the Trinity as three persons seated around a round table that is clearly large enough for more than three people. 
and the eyes of Father, Son, and Spirit gazing onto the viewer of that icon. Why? So that you as the viewer would say, God invites me into this fellowship, us into this fellowship. It's such a beautiful reality. In Jesus, by the Spirit, God intends for us to know that he desires us. He wants us to be near him and with him. He wants us to eat with him and fellowship with him. He wants us to take up our life in this world, our lives in this world, out, out of the beauty of this relational fellowship with Father, Son, and Spirit. That that would alter the way we inhabit our own life stories that have pain, that include suffering, that include difficulty, that include opposition and challenges and moments when we very much want to give up, but that we would remember in the midst of it that we have been drawn into this amazing act of that which God is doing and bringing his kingdom near us in Jesus. So with that in mind, think about these last verses of 1 Thessalonians, and I just want to focus on two things, uh, two ideas, community and presence, community and presence. So first, community, our life together, verses 11 to 22 seem to me to be all about the way we live life together, right? These words that uh, Paul uses are meant to help us to think through what does it look like for us to live in proximity to one another? And now you know that if you've ever lived in proximity to one another, you have conflict, right? Because we're all broken people and we bring our pain and our woundedness and our brokenness into our current relationships. And guess what? We don't love well. So here in this text, in this part of the text, Paul uses these words that are like life together actions, if you will. They're life together behaviors, if you will. So he uses words like encourage, build up, respect, esteem and love, seek peace with one another. Right? These are actions that produce the effects that they describe. And they always, always involve other people. Right? I can't be encouraged alone. You can't be encouraged alone. We're meant to live in proximity to one another and offer and extend words of encouragement. I need someone to help build me, that is to form me, which is why, guess what, we all grew up in the context of some type of caregiving because an infant can't care for themselves. These are words that happen in the context of proximity and interactions and in the church in which we leverage ourselves for the sake of the other. If you seek to live individualistically or you seek to live in the solitude of your own heart, in your own head, if you don't somehow get out of your head and into the community of real living relationships, you will not experience these things and you will not be the kind of person that gives them away to others. Our world will suffer because it will be less and less like the peaceable world that God promises. Because we don't live near one another. These are attributes of the community of faith that has experienced the profound welcome of God in the person of Jesus. So that when you reimagine your own story as a part of that which God is doing in the person of Jesus Christ, it leads you away from your knee-jerk reactions to compare to critique and to condemn. And instead you become a self-giving, self a self-donating person in the community as you seek to love. Now how do we get there? In verse 12, 
Paul calls us to esteem leaders within the community. Now, this is not a time to plug the pastors of the church, by the way. Um, but Paul does acknowledge that there's differentiation in the persons that are a part of the community. We're not, uh, we're, we're, we're equally drawn in, we're equally welcomed, and we all are given different gifts, but they're different gifts. We don't all do the same thing. We don't all have the same set of experiences in life. We don't all offer the same thing to the community at the same time, sometimes because I'm in a weak space and my offering is weak. And sometimes because I'm in a space in which I don't, um, I'm not interested in being led very well, right? I mean, they're just these realities of our life together. And here Paul says, I want you to esteem those that are loving you this way. I want you to esteem and love those who are posturing their life toward you for your sake. I want you to do that. It's important that you do that. He urges them to esteem those persons that are a little ahead of them in life. A few weeks ago, as we were looking at this same series, I mentioned that one of the things that you and I need if we're to grow up and be built up as Christians so that we consistently take next steps of faith is that we need sages in our lives, right? These are the wise persons that you may never meet, but you've read their books. You listen to their podcasts. They somehow help you understand the story of Christ in some unique way. And our community has sages that we lean into. And periodically you hear me drop the name Rowan Williams. And so you know who my sage is, right? You know, I let you know those things. These are the people that I listen to, that I read. Leslie Newbegin, let's do another one while we're at it. Um, you know, we just, we, we, we look to people that we've never met. But they shape the way we think about what it means to be a part of the church. But where the rubber hits the road is in the context of real living community. And that's where you need guides and allies. And a guide is someone who's a mentor. There's someone who's a little ahead of you. There's someone who has more experience and maybe, and quite often, they have more training. It may be a, a counselor that you see. It may be a spiritual director that you see. It may be your pastor. It may even be a community group leader. But these are persons in the community that are occupying roles of leadership that are just a little bit ahead of you. They have something to offer. Their training is a little bit differently. But every one of us also need allies. And these are the peers that we live alongside of in the body of Christ in which we let other people participate in our own journey. We let them get close enough that they can say things and engage with us in different ways. We need guides and we need allies. Um, so some of you know that tomorrow Stacy and I celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary. Yes, woohoo! She persevered with me, it's pretty amazing, right? Um, so one of the interesting things Stacy's been doing over the last 30 days is she's been chronicling our lives uh, in picture and in verse because she's written a little cap, a little paragraph or so beneath these collections of pictures on her Instagram account. I'm sorry, I'm probably giving you more Instagram followers, Stacy, than you want, but it's been a really beautiful thing for me to read. I've not commented on them, by the way, but I've, but I've, I've, I've hit the heart button. I've loved them. Um, but one of the very interesting things to do is when you sort of pull back and you say, okay, wow, 30 years of life together, of, of us as a couple, of us as parents, you know, me as a father, this is Father's Day after all. Remember that, kids? Um, so one of the beautiful things about sort of pulling back from that is that you, you begin to see patterns in your life, right? You see just movement 
of patterns in your life. And it was interesting to see, you know, there are, there are stretches of time when I think probably me more than Stacy, but even to some degree both of us, that we just didn't know what we didn't know. And one of the results of not knowing what you don't know is that you think you don't need guides, right? And sometimes you think you don't even really need allies because you, you know enough to just keep going, to keep doing your life as you want to do it. And we all have those moments that typically, you know, are on the earlier side of our moments when we've suffered less. And then you hit these moments where you're like, oh, wow, well, I've got to find a guide, you know? And so it's been interesting looking at the 30 years where I've thought, wow, this was a season when, when we just didn't know what we didn't know, and we were just kind of cruising along and doing our thing, and we you know, feel good about ourselves. And then you begin to see those moments when you're hitting a wall of some sort, some sort of difficulty, some sort of suffering, and it's like, oh, wow, we were leaning into guides pretty heavily then. You know, maybe it was a counselor, maybe it was a pastor, maybe it was some peer inside the church even that was older than us and knew more than we knew, but you're leaning heavily into guides. And then there was that really profound moment when we moved to New York City and we're like, wait, we are the guides. This really stinks. What are we doing? A hindsight, a retrospective on your life will tell you a lot about how you've lived in community. Do you have sages? Do you have guides? Do you have allies? We need all of these things in our lives if we're to be built up, if we're to grow. And so here Paul says, can you honor that differentiation in the body of Christ? Can you get into the place of a of a, of a, where, where maybe you're an ally can you get in the place where maybe you're even serving for a, as a guide to someone who's a little bit younger or a little bit newer in Christian faith than you are can you get into a place where you hold your life in an open hand before a guide because that's hard because all of us want to live individualistically we need all of these things. And then in these kinds of relationships in the body, Paul says around verse 14 that there's another kind of differentiation that happens. That is that love gets differentiated. You know, I like to think that love is just happy moments and happy feelings where we're just all chummy and we're getting along fine. But Paul describes four very different ways of expressing love or dimensions of love. Sometimes it looks like admonition for the idlers, right? Sometimes it looks like encouragement for the faithful hearted and sometimes it looks like help for those that are in a weak space and sometimes it, it looks and really all the time it looks like being patient with everyone have you tried any of those words on in the context of your relationships some of them are harder than others I prefer encouragement to admonition I would much rather you come to me and say I've got, an, I've got something I want to tell you that's encouraging about you than something tough hey I think I need to admonish you. Sometimes I would rather not be in a place or a circumstance of life where I'm dependent such that I need practical help. Because I'd rather do it myself. And I'm mad that I can't. Have you ever felt those things? Community draws a number of things out, but it also shows us that we live through different circumstances and moments in life in which we just need different things from one another. Sometimes I need admonition, and you do too. And sometimes I need encouragement, and you do too. And sometimes I'm in a place where I'm low, and I need help because I can't do it. And I need to be honest about that and not hide it. I need to accept it. And always... I need patience. 
you need patience because we are broken individuals who are struggling to figure out how do you take next steps with Jesus in this real life? And if you're not patient with one another, it tells me, it tells me that the moment we stop being patient with one another, it tells me that either A, I think I'm great and have the right words so that you should just get on with it. If only you'd just get on with it. Or it tells me that I think you have superpowers and you ought to just be able to dream this up for yourself. You see, patience is a part of Christian community because we're not God. We are dependent individuals who need the grace of God's interaction in our life. And I can't change you. One of my very early memories of being a pastor, it would be about 25 years ago now, since I've been married 30. Uh, I was pastoring down in South Carolina and I hit a really discouraging moment. There were a number of discouraging things that happened uh, in, in my first experience as a pastor. The church burned down, different weird things happened. Um, I didn't do it, by the way. Um, but there were some weird things, right? And so there, there, but there were some really discouraging things because there were some really profoundly difficult pastoral situations. There, was a, uh, there were a couple of women in our congregation who, um, who, had a num- who had some significant mental illness and uh, you know, borderline personality, one of the women did, and another uh, had dissociative identity disorder, and uh, you know, actually two of them did. And, and so here, you, here I am, I'm like stupid. I mean, really, I'm, I'm, like, I needed a guide in that moment because I didn't know what to do, and I'd find myself discouraged like how do I do I don't know what to say differently I don't know how to talk about grace differently I don't know how to how to mediate the presence of Jesus differently and so I remember talking to my guide I called him up because he'd moved away he'd taken a church somewhere else he was the first pastor Joe Novenson that I'd worked with and I called Joe and I just said hey I I need a guide you know can you help navigate this with me because I don't know what I'm doing it's clearly not working and he just said you know Tuck when, when people when people are profoundly wounded, you spoon feed them. He said, like imagine a bird that you find that's wounded, it's broken its wing, you know, and that bird, every time you approach that bird, it could be any other kind of animal that's wild, but you approach that animal, you approach that bird. And the moment it sees you coming toward the cage, it's absolutely terrified of you. Because you're not meant to live in its environment in that way, right? You're, you're just not meant to be there. But here you are, you're dealing with a wounded person, and what do you do? You, you just spoon feed. Just little bitty bites. That's all you can do. And you leave it in the hands of God. Good advice for a young pastor. The people in our community that we encounter, each of us in the room today, we are just where we are. And some of you think about your life, you think, I'm, I'm in a good place. I'm, I'm taking those next steps of faith. I feel joyful. I feel confident. Some of you don't. You feel stuck. You don't want to tell someone that you feel stuck. You need help, but you don't want help. You know, it's like you need encouragement, but you're not close enough to someone to get encouragement. You know, you're, you're, you, you need to be a giver of encouragement, but you're not close enough to know someone needs encouragement. You need admonition because you're kind of doing your own thing. You don't really care 
what God thinks or anyone else. You're sort of oppositional, if you will, in this text to the prophets, to the words that God offers you through his people and his word by the Spirit. We need to be spoon-fed. We need to be near one another. This is how we grow up. I think when Paul is just gesturing in this last sweep that you would be a community that esteems leadership, I think he's talking about stuff like that. That you'd live in such a way that you get what you need so that you hear the story of Christ and you recognize you are caught up in it. You are not alone. You are not left with the story of your life. You are drawn into the story of Jesus' life. The welcome of God, that's what Paul has been articulating from the beginning of this letter. And it's what he wants for the church. Community. Now, presence. Very quickly. This is about God's presence. You see, the only reason Christian community makes any sense at all, the only reason that any of us would ever take the risk of admonition, saying something hard to someone, receiving a hard word from another. The only reason that we would take the risk of love that just continually turns itself out to another, that leverages itself for the sake of another, which means you're taking up your cross and you're following Jesus in relational life. The only reason you die like that is because the story of Christ is true. Jesus is present to his church. Jesus is present to your life. The things you've come through this past week, the things you'll encounter in the coming week or the coming year. The only reason you do this is the presence of God in our midst because of the faithfulness of Jesus. Verses 23 and 24. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do this. Those are the words that Paul leaves the church with because he wants us to know that you can take the risk of loving in a kingdom kind of way because you can't screw the kingdom up. You can't. You believe that? Sometimes we live as if we're leaders in the community and it all depends on us. So we, we develop messiah complexes, right? All the time. We live in a narcissistic way toward the community, imagining ourselves in the place of Jesus in the wrong sort of way. What Paul wants us to know is that you can't derail the kingdom of God and so you are a part of that kingdom that cannot be derailed and so take the risk of love. Take the risk of love. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit invite us into their company in such a way that you and I begin to mirror his love into the world. And look, I know that you've not consistently experienced that in many of the church communities you've been a part of, and you may not even have consistently experienced it at City Church. But that is the dream, and that is the ideal, and that is what God calls us to, to mirror love like his for us. So as we finish, let me just circle back to this theme of Trinity. The theologian Robert Jensen in his little book right here, A Theology and Outline, has just a beautiful chapter on the Trinity um, and yes, it's tremendously mysterious, right, to begin to think about this relationship of God. But 
He just simply concludes it by saying, if you want to think about the Trinity, think about the Lord's Prayer. And we pray this almost every single week in our worship service. And it begins, our Father who art in heaven. As he begins to unpack that, he says, it wasn't dramatic, all of the things that Jesus tells us to pray for, daily bread and forgiveness of sins. There's nothing particularly dramatic about that. There's nothing particularly new about that. But you do discover in this prayer that first statement, our Father, our Father. And the language that Jesus chooses to use there to teach them how to pray is familial language. It's not kingly language. It's not God our King. It's God our Father. It's familial language. It's as though though Jesus was saying our Daddy, our Papa, our Daddy, our Papa. He says, the really beautiful thing about this is just simply this, that no one that would be listening to that would suspect that they had the right to approach God with familiarity like that. But what Jesus is extending to his disciples and he extends to us, and we repeat this week after week after week, is just simply this, that he invites you to piggyback on his relationship with the Father. And on the basis of what he has He invites you to refer to God in the same words that he himself used to refer to the Father. Our Papa. Our Daddy. I'm aware that some of you, as you think about Father's Day, it's hard. Because you don't, you you lament the loss of a father that you've loved, perhaps that's died recently. You recognize that your own experiences in life didn't always include those tender moments of Papa. But here's the beauty of Christian faith. God invites you into his own experience of the fatherhood of God. That is your welcome. That when you think about how do I relate to God, who is God vis-a-vis me, it is he is your daddy He is your papa, and he delights in you. And so just as Jonathan in the baptismal liturgy was articulating just a few moments ago, he looks upon you and he says, my beloved child with whom I'm well pleased. Jensen writes that Jesus taught us to address God as our daddy so that we would live in this active relationship. And so we pray to the father with him, with the Son, and in the Spirit, who is the spiritual energy by which or in whom we hope to do just that. The whole doctrine of the Trinity, he says, can be explained by simply remarking that Christians pray to the Father with the Son and the Spirit. And we are convinced that by doing so, we are properly caught up in the story of God who lives with his people, the invitation of the Trinity, looking upon your life, inviting you into rich fellowship with him so that you might live with one another in his likeness. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would be with us as we continue to think on these words and as we move through our service of worship, that you would remind us of the divine welcome that we have in your presence. 
that we would be enriched in our own earthly stories because of your love for us in Christ. Meet us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. The offering is a time for us to think on those things that God is teaching us. We offer our hearts and our lives to him. Let's do that now.